0: Welcome to the Herd Quitter Podcast. I'm your host, Jared Lumen. On this show, we talk to farmers and ranchers who aren't afraid to think for themselves and do things a little bit differently. We hope these guests will challenge you to look at your farms and ranches in a new way and result in a more profitable and enjoyable business for you and your family. Welcome back to the Herd Quitter Podcast. Today's guest is actually a recommendation from a past guest, which I always appreciate. So a note to the listeners, if you've got somebody you'd like to hear on the Herd Quitter Podcast, let me know. And you can do that by sending me an email at herdquitterpodcast at gmail.com or just reach out to me on Herd Quitter Podcast for Facebook or Instagram. Uh, But Pete Bauman is today's guest, and and he works as the range field specialist for SDSU Extension, where he specializes in range, pasture, and grassland systems, with an emphasis on something that really excites me, and I'm hoping we get to talk a lot about today, which is educating producers on how profitability and ecological balance are complementary. Which to some folks might be a, you know, a contradictory statement, but I, I think it really is a is a good, uh, is a good point. And so Pete, uh, really looking forward to our conversation, and welcome to the Herd Quitter Podcast. Well, thanks for having me, Jared. Yeah, yeah, I'm I'm looking forward to it. And if you wouldn't mind maybe just starting us off with an introduction, your history and how you got to kind of where you are today with SDSU Extension.
1: Yeah, we were talking earlier off off offline. Um Mm -hmm. so I grew up on a on a small dairy or I always say dairy, I don't know why I fall into (laughs) because Minnesota's dairy, but uh, I did not grow up on a dairy operation. My dad (laughs) came from one, but I know we grew up on a small small beef operation in uh, Wright County, uh near Delano, Minnesota. That's my hometown and and uh we like I, like we were talking earlier. We were probably organic in relation to the beef product that my dad was producing uh, before, uh, or, or maybe without even knowing we were organic. In, in the sense that everything that we fed was basically raised off the farm, low chemical input co- inputs and things like that. And that was you know in the late '70s through the early '90s um, era. And it's not that there was chemicals used on the farm, some, but it just wasn't a, a big part of of the the management not like it is today you know um mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and so the the beef um my dad prided himself in a couple things and that was uh no hormones no implants um just really wanted to listen to his customers he had a lot of customers in the cities and then a lot of those animals went out also just basically shipped to south st paul as butcher or as slaughter animals as well mm-hmm. um, so that's kind of the background but the
0: your dad was doing some direct marketing direct even at marketing. that point
1: yeah, wow. oh, absolutely. The- yeah, it's a cool, it's a really cool story. I don't know. If we got time. You can edit out what you want. But so my dad, you know, we had we farmed, but he worked full time at at that time it was called Cloverleaf, but the Marigold Foods um, Creamery down in in the heart of Minneapolis. Um, hmm. And uh, so he would commute every day from home. And so the farm was always, you know, he always called the farm, you know, uh, the best place to raise his family. Um, profitability
0: eh, debatable <laughs> you know? um, yeah, yeah.
1: but uh and we weren't big i mean at the very at the very largest i think we maybe had 60 60 pairs 70 pairs maybe at the very biggest um Mm -hmm. we ever were but but it was a great way to grow up um kind of opened my eyes you know to the to the i I was driven you know i love doing the farm work and stuff but i was really driven to are really uh, attracted to the other side of the land which was our you know the pasture swamps rangelands i was you know the the most outdoorsy, you know, for sure of, of any of my siblings. And I spent most of my free time out in the woods, um, had some other mentors, you know, in the, in the neighborhood as well, some other relatives, but overall that was kind of, that was growing up. And what I, what I can see now looking back is, and I think I should make this point very clearly, we, we tend in this industry to sometimes fall in the trappings of, of attacking and saying, you know, why why are they doing that? Why don't they know better? Why is that farmer doing this, this, or this to their land? And I think I've come to realize that very few people are managing their land with ill intent. They actually truly believe they're stewarding things well. You know, whether that be any number of tillage practices, drainage practices, you have it. They really, there really is no ill intent. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, that we often fall into the trappings of labeling people with greed or lack of knowledge. And it really comes down to, I think, lack of knowledge. And I would put my dad in that category. Um, you -hmm. know, as a, as a farmer, he farmed the way he farmed the way the neighborhood farmed. Good Christian man, you know, wouldn't, wouldn't intentionally hurt anything, but in the, in the culture of the practices of the, of the day in that area, you know, I always often joke, we plowed downhill, we moldboard plowed downhill because it was faster, right? Yeah. <laughs> like, <Yeah. laughs> you know, so our land management practices probably weren't all that good. Um, and you can see the repercussions of that today on the farm. So that's just a little bit of background. It just kind of gives me a, a basis, I guess, to, to have some validity as we you know, as to what I do today. Uh, went on to college at South Dakota State University, wildlife and fisheries and environmental management. And always was really attracted to um, working with producers and working with the private land sides. So then I stayed on for my master's and worked on a large elk project in the Black Hills for a couple of years. And uh, I started to formulate some, some uh, philosophies, I guess, personal philosophies. And one of those was um, landowners really matter. And when you step into the National Park Service, like this was at Wind Cave Park that I was stationed, and I'm 22 years old, and that park has been there since 1903, and then here, to hear the neighbors say, you know, you're the first person that's ever stopped and talked to us, that resonated with me a lot. You know, that isolationist <laughs> attitude that sometimes uh, agencies have toward their neighbors, you know, that I thought that was so intriguing and, and kind of almost appalling that here this park had been their neighbor forever and that was the first person to ever stop and pull in the driveway and say hi you know and so that really that really stuck with me on the on the landowner side and i really carried that with me through my career uh ultimately start, worked for the nature conservancy um out of eastern south dakota managing uh, eastern south dakota and southwest minnesota projects great wonderful opportunity you know career-wise and I was with them for 15 years and really really tried to put uh, the neighbors around these preserves in the correct context as far as partners and we relied on them we relied on them we didn't really know it and in turn you know a mutual relationship so um, Mm -hmm. I really I really tried to cultivate that part of of my job and really took that part really seriously, that, that private lands side and that private partner, that mutualistic relationship type
0: of thing. And I'm curious on that, on that topic. So what, what exactly was the work that you were doing in that role with the Nature Conservancy and how did you engage your neighbors in partnerships and, in you know, kind of those relationships, what, what came out of those yeah, relationships?
1: That's a, that's a great question. So again, um, um you know, as, as any agency or nonprofit or, or organization goes, it kinda goes by the person on the ground and and I would say that there was some predecessors that maybe made some effort to reach out to the neighbors and, and others that maybe didn't. I just made it a point that I wanted that in short order, I was managing eighteen properties, I think, across the two states. Mm-hmm. I wanted to know every single person that was that touched us, mm-hmm. that touched our property. I wanted to meet them personally with no other goal other than meeting them and letting them know that I was available. I knew that likely there were, we were you know, there's going to be across the gamut. Um, people are, some are going to love us some are going to hate us, mm-hmm. but we were neighbors, you know? And so um, that was kind of the first step. The second step was, you know, very quickly transitioning into what do you think of us? What, what are we doing well? What are we doing on your, you know, what are we, what do we agree on? What do we not agree on? What do you, what questions do you have? Um and it's funny, like in the Nature Conservancy example, um, most of your neighbors to a small preserve, they see maybe you as the neighbor, or maybe they see the, like in this case, let's say the Minnesota chapter of the Nature Conservancy as their neighbor. They may mm-hmm. not see this global organization as their neighbor, right?
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
1: So you got to be able to kind of relate to them at on all of those levels. And, and, and then and in turn, help them understand that, what you can and cannot do locally or what you desire to do locally may or may not reflect the large overarching uh, objectives of the global organization right i think you know i mean let's just let's call let's let's be honest uh there's probably you know if we use something like the nature conservancy as an example the how and what we did in the great plains may not be consistent with how and what they did in Asia, for instance, or on a global agenda. Right. So you just try to work as best as you can locally and make those neighbors know that you can't, I can't control the whole organization, but I can control what we do here in our corner of the world to Mm -hmm. some degree. Right. Mm -hmm. So that was kind of the, that was kind of the relationship building. The actual work though, was worked very, very hard to, um, it's kind of funny because, in South Dakota when I was in South Dakota I was actually trying to get some cattle off of our preserves because we had stocking rates and grazing programs that were inherited and trickled down and there really wasn't any science really wasn't any objectives it was more just cattle for the sake of cattle um which isn't a great way to to manage So in South Dakota, I might've been, you know, looked at as the hippie in Minnesota. I was kind of looked at as maybe the cowboy because I was trying to put cattle back on land in Minnesota where they had been 50, 60, maybe 80 years absent. And that was even, that was fun and challenging to, to take an organization and challenge their thinking internally and saying, you know, because one of these arguments that, well, this land has maybe never had livestock on it. Well, people didn't build fences for no livestock, you know, and we'd have these old fence rows and we'd have these forties and eighties. And, and so the return of the, of livestock to those prairies was extremely important because um, probably what we as managers noticed the most, and this isn't just a a one person uh, observation, it was collectively as we were all coming up through the system, Mm -hmm. we were in an era where cool season exotic grasses and other species were, you know, we were essentially kind of purchasing these properties maybe in the, in the seventies and eighties, and then putting your arms around them and loving them to death and saying, you know, no more cattle. And, 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 and the cow was villainized as the problem when the problem was the management It had, you know? um, Mm -hmm. And so we had a, it was kind of an awakening. We, and, and by doing so, what a great opportunity to then to work with the neighbors and to really bring them in, as partners on, a, mm-hmm. you know, on vision and goals of within, right in their own neighborhood. Yeah. So it was the return of livestock to some of these Minnesota preserves that um I think catapulted my interests even further in really working, you know, the, we can have, we can have, and I will defend, you know, any day of the week that we do need preserves and we need places and we need Land that's untouched. We you know we do need parks. We we have a lot of a lot of multiple interests in in, in our country, right? Mm-hmm. But we also need well managed private land, um, sure. and we need to you know we need to make sure that those private landowners also have a vested interest in in. The, the lands that border them, an opportunity, you know, too. So, anyway, that was kind of, kind of a long answer, but that's really what shaped, you know, my desire then to move to SDSU Extension and take that even further and really work, you know, directly with landowners. Um, and that's pretty much what I do now: is, is uh, direct consultation, planning, um, working with landowners on restoration of grasslands, grazing systems, um, the nuts and bolts of grazing, uh, the nuts and bolts of habitat enhancement. Um, I'm, I've kind of got a dualistic role in natural resources and, and the uh, grazing. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the, the very cool thing about what I do now is I'm, I'm assigned and work very closely with the South Dakota grassland coalition. I don't sure. claim any, any, um, any real personal victories. It's a team. It's completely a team effort out here. Um, we've got so mm-hmm. many great producers and so many great partners that we've been able to kind of move the needle pretty well in the last, you know, I would say 20 years or so with the, with and through the Grassland Coalition.
0: Yeah. So how long have you been with SDSU now then?
1: 10 years, which is amazing.
0: Yeah. <laughs> I, uh,
1: I really can't believe it's been that long, but yeah. And
0: so when you say you've been able to move the needle, I guess I'm curious when you came into this, where was grazing with a lot of the folks that you were working with then and, and how have you been? helping them advance their, or what, have you seen as far as progression in their grazing, maybe management and strategies, and then what, what does that look like in land improvement? Okay.
1: Well, when I, if I, if I inadvertently say I, I really mean we, um, so just take that as, you know, take it's, it is absolutely a team effort, but, um, so in the last 20 years, uh, the South Dakota grassland coalition, uh, in particular, I would say has been the leader in advocating for wise use of private grasslands. And and the reason that this works is the, the board itself is actually made up of, um, you know, you basically have to be a producer to be on the board. You know, the mm-hmm. board is advised very well by a lot of agency staff and, and that type of thing and partners, but you have to, you know, it's producer-led, producer-driven. The other cool thing about it that was very wise when they began that organization is they didn't call it the grazing coalition and they didn't call it the cattle, cattle coalition. They call it the grassland coalition,
0: mm-hmm.
1: which opens the door for all things related to grasslands, whether that's um, policy that not in the sense that there's lobbyists but that they pay attention to policy and they pay attention to tools methods techniques that might be out of the wheelhouse of maybe your conventional just straight up grazing so and and then it what it also has done by taking that that direction it's opened the door to partner with just about anybody that's interested in the um, advancement of grassland management in south dakota so i would say then when i when i moved over to sdsu extension you know you ask how we move the needle Mm -hmm. and i would say it's just more capacity um the the you know the bread and butter in south dakota is the south dakota grazing school you know spearheaded by the grassland coalition but supported you know behind the scenes by a multitude of organizations and individuals Mm -hmm. and i think we've touched somewhere around 800 grazers um through that school You know, Hmm. to date, and it's that expansion of that web of of understanding and knowledge that you start to say moves the needle a little bit. You know, um, that that um, producer to producer connectivity. Most of the people that come to the grazing school are come through referrals. Mm -hmm. My Mm -hmm. role at SDSU Extension then I think was a new role uh, ten years ago, which was um, what they called an range field specialist. So then we got to connect, you know, the arm of what was going on on the, on the private side and the, with the producers through the Grassland Coalition, kind of reconnect with the university in a different way and to u- and use the kind of the power or the reach of the university as well to advance the cooperative mission of both organizations. And so, you know, you might ask, why is that different? Well, why it's different is, uh, I think, historically an extension – If you're familiar with extension, Mm -hmm. um, extension tends to kind of put extension first. Um, Sure, extension has a history of um, sometimes, you know, and I'm I'm just being honest, um, promoting (laughs) itself and the university as the maybe as the the core, the crux of the knowledge. Right? Mm -hmm. We've kind of flipped that on its head and said, you know, if we're gonna do, it's very rare that I do a, a a program or a promotion or an event even if i'm working really hard behind the scenes and even if i maybe be may, maybe might be say the coordinator of that event it's very rare that sdsu extension gets top billing on something like that mm-hmm. it's very common that it's the south dakota Grassland coalition or another partner or or at, at a mm-hmm. minimum a multi-partner um event and that resonates so much better, um, with, uh, with producers. And I, and I think, you know, simply it's probably because they they probably come thinking though that knowing that they're going, going to get a, an opportunity to be discussed with versus talked to, you know? Um, and I think it's that kind of cooperative, um, philosophy that's really making this work, you know, in mm-hmm. South Dakota oh. in particular.
0: Yeah, no, that, that's really neat. And, and, an important view of that is that valuing the producers, the folks doing it and kind of from the ground up as opposed from university down necessarily. And I would say you're in a position where you get to say those things being an extension yeah, I am. whether stuff, I get to so. or not, I do. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, that's, that's yeah. awesome. And I appreciate that. Right. So I'm curious then like getting into the actual grass management, like the stuff that you work yeah. with, the farmers you're working on you know, and stuff like I mentioned at the beginning, something that kind of stood out to me in your bio when I was reading it is that how profitability and ecological balance are complementary. And I guess maybe this isn't so, you know, kind con- controversial necessarily in a, in a grazing systems, but I think a lot of times in cropping, I've, I've heard it when I talk with people about different types of management that might improve soil and stuff is that, well, this is a business, you know, I got to do what pencils out best or makes me the, the highest dollar at the end. And that's fair, but, this this idea that they really are complementary and they go hand in hand uh you know ecological and, and soil health along with profitability is is i think maybe misunderstood or just you know it, but it's really important and so i'm curious what uh how you i uh, get go about working with producers to help them realize that and put it into practice
1: well i think the first couple of truths are um i listen and i listen a lot and mm-hmm. and as we go through this Next part of our conversation, realize that um, some of the things I'm going to share are of my own um, experience, and, and but but much of what I'm going to share is because I listen and have this privilege of surrounding myself with producers themselves who have figured this out and have shared it themselves. So when I say that ecological balance and profitability can go hand in hand. I can't point you to university research necessarily that's going to um, flat out, you know, support that hundred percent. You know, there's so many caveats. It's all about philosophy and management and where where Mm -hmm. you value and how you define profitability. But I can say with utmost certainty and confidence that those that have figured it out are more profitable. Their bottom line is better they have a much better lifestyle. They have much lower stress. They have healthier families. They have healthier personal personal health. And the mm-hmm. list just goes on and on and on. So right. I think part of that, without trying to be too philosophical, is profitability does go far beyond the dollars, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but without the dollars, the rest of it's not really worth talking about because you can't get it off square one.
0: Mm-hmm. Um,
1: and the second thing I think I want to point out is that I've kind of labeled myself. I'm like the rangeland gateway drug, right? Like (laughs) I seem to get, I seem to get uh, the folks that are thinking about things, you know, what I call maybe even the newbies. A lot of those folks come, come through my, my, uh, you know, my door, you know,
0: Mm
1: -hmm. phone, whatever it might be. But, but a lot of times I, I'm the, i for a lot of people, it seems like I end up being their first touch toward thinking about something differently. Sure. And then I have to discern at what point and how quickly do the, you expose them to the, you know, cause it can be like drinking from a fire hose, um, once mm-hmm. you get into this stuff, you know? Yeah. Um, and so, so, you know, that's part of the, the background. And I, I guess the third caveat before we really start talking about how this all works is, um, there is a ton of programs and opportunities to help you become or may maybe realize or maintain profitability right there's a there's a host of government state other type of programs you know from nrcs programs so your local you know in minnesota or the dakotas you know game fishing parks or dnr or fish and wildlife mm-hmm. help i mean and they're all wonderful partners i think what i've realized though in this job is that um I've, I've realized that people have to be on their land two or three years, either physically when they're taking over a new property, or even when they're changing their philosophy, how they, how they view their property, they need to be, they need to be in that zone of thought for a couple of years really before they're really ready for some of those programs because mm-hmm. you're kind of going through this learning process right yeah. and what happens is that the detraction the, the of the financial help feels like profitability
0: mm-hmm. and so we
1: gravitate to that and it's not bad and it's not wrong and those programs have absolutely helped um folks transition mm-hmm. toward toward true profitability, but those programs themselves aren't really in the profitability equation. They're like the, get, the bridge gap.
0: Yeah, and so when yeah. you
1: do that, you have to really understand what you're getting into because sometimes people jump in too quickly and then it comes down to nuts and bolts, like things like, gosh, I wish I would have not put that fence there and put it over there. Or I wish mm-hmm. I wouldn't have put, you know, invested in that water system on this corner and I really wish I would have put it over there. Well, then you've got this, um, this contractual obligation that goes Mm -hmm. along with those funds. And, and so it's just kind of that clear thinking on the front end. Sure. Um, So how does it all come together? You know, in my world, um, oftentimes somebody knocks on my door and they're just thinking about doing something different. Mm -hmm. They've realized somewhere along the line, they've had some kind of an awakening um, that prompts them to want to see something different on their land. And, and I believe it's, you know, I believe it's human nature. I believe that we all know what's written on our hearts is that we, we kind of know when something's out of order, but we may not know the how and the why. Right. You mm-hmm. know, and, and I'll give you an example. Um, I'm working with a woman right now. Her, her, she's a, you know, she's in her early seventies and her husband passed away a few years ago. And she, you know, she thought they lived in a pristine, wonderful um, pasture environment. And by all accounts, they did. They have, you know, tons of wetlands and they've got all this migratory waterfall and they've got all these elements that would make it feel like you're, you in know, a, in, a, in a good place. Mm-hmm. But one day she just looked at the ground differently and she wondered, is this the best way that this rangeland and pasture can be managed? You know, right? So she comes through the door and and um you know over some a few a series of conversations, I go out and look at the place and it's a moonscape it's dismal hmm. and it's clearly obvious that there cannot be any profitability there true profitability, yes, mm-hmm. she's going to receive her rent check, so she might be profitable, but the system the system was unsustainable right mm-hmm. so that's a really that's a really kind of core example of So then then I have this great privilege of this job to then help walk that person through, you know, tearing down all these, you know, what are the what what what's the background story here? You know, is it the grazer? Does the grazer need to be educated? Um, is there is it relationships? Is it is it misunderstanding, you know, and all those things? Because I think that inherently people are inherently know when something is good or bad. They just, we just might not know why. And I, and I think about this in in the sense that when we all go on vacation, how many people go vacation and park their camper in the middle of a cornfield in Iowa? We are attracted to the wide open spaces, the beautiful places, the diversity, even if we don't want to, even if we don't know it, or maybe don't want to admit it, Mm -hmm. we are more attracted to that fullness of life than we are on a monocultural, you know, dead zone. You know, that might be a conventional cornfield or something. And I'm not attacking corn. I'm just using that as an example.
0: That's, well, that's an interesting perspective. Yeah. I hadn't considered Is yeah, what are we drawn to naturally and why can't we develop that? It reminds me of a conversation I had with a producer around here who's, uh, what's the word he uses? He's trying to develop his farm into, um. Oh gosh. A sanctuary. The sanctuary. Yeah. He he wants his farm to be a sanctuary for him and his wife that they can go out and explore and walk. He wants to be a sanctuary for his cattle and his livestock, for his wildlife, for the consumers. They sell direct to consumers and they have consumers that they welcome them out to the farm and that he just wants to build this beautiful thing and that it can be productive and profitable. And in addition to that, provide this benefit and value of beauty and, you know, enjoyment that, you know, I guess I see your point that maybe isn't so much enjoyed in a corn and soybean field, but not that there's anything wrong with that. But
1: yeah, it's not available, and and I think you know, like this is a bit of a tangent. But you use the word sanctuary; it's such a strong term, right? Historically, if you take if you take our cowboy farmer culture and pit it against maybe the culture that I came you know, that I worked in as well, which is, um, say like this preservationist culture, right? The word sanctuary means something completely different. The historically, the word sanctuary might be, might imply hands off, don't touch. You can go look at it, but, Mm. but do not try to manage or manipulate it. That this is a sanctuary. We're just going to kind of let nature take its course. Right.
0: Yeah.
1: And, um, Versus the the definition of the sanctuary that you just determined, defined, which is also and possibly even more accurate because what, what, what did that person convey to you? They conveyed their human sanctuary. What, Mm -hmm. what part of their sanctuary, what, what part of their, you know, their, as a steward, what did they want for their own sanctuary? So it it takes the, the idea of the ecological sanctuary and expands it to include the person. And that's a much healthier way to look at it, right? And and that person that you're describing also needs to be profitable, right? <laughs> um, they need to know that they've got a market. Uh, they need to know that they're going to be, you know, is is watered down as the word sustainable is anymore. But they need to know that they're going to be there. Um, they're going to be regenerative. They're going to be resilient. You know, we can use all these terms, but that's the package deal, right? That's kind of the that's kind of the holy grail of what we're trying to to achieve. And, you know, I, I get this privilege of working with a lot of people here in Eastern South Dakota. And I think this is where, this is where this kind of comes together on, on profitability. A lot of times I'll, I'll, I'll start with, um, I, I have very few answers, but I can a- ask a lot of people, a lot of questions. And so a typical producer in this part of the world and getting into even your area of Minnesota, you know, that the, the it, it's tends to, to shift a little bit. But a typical producer west of me would have more rangeland, eh, arguably more rangeland than cropland. A producer east of me is probably going to have more cropland than rangeland. You know, most of the pastures and rangelands that are left, let's just say Minnesota, you know, it's basically where we couldn't plow, right? I mean, either too steep, too wooded, too drainages, et cetera. Yeah. 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 I live in the zone between kind of, you know, the, if we take that zone between the, the Missouri or the James river and the Mississippi, where there's this, where you're, there's very few people that are only ranchers and, or only farmers. We get into the Minnesota, there are definitely, you know, only farmers, right? Grow crop and no livestock. But in this area, most people have both. And so I just kind of start with this questioning, like, okay, if you've got a 50 50, let's say your land base is 50 50, 50% pasture, 50% cropland, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And you start tearing down where you, your, your energy and investment and your thought process goes. So on the crop side, to t- in today's world, you might have your agronomist, you might have your seed salesman, you might have your co-op and, and any number of people that are paid or unpaid that you get advice from and invest time, energy, talent into that cropping side, right? How much investment do you make into the grassland side? I mean, mm-hmm. it, it, you know, if you have a land base, it's let's say your land, your asset is 50-50. Are you putting 50% of your thought, energy, time, Business planning into the pasture side of your of your operation, and most people would say, "Absolutely, I'm not." It's maybe five percent or less, you know. And that's kind of how I start that conversation. Is like, okay, so where's the untapped potential? You know, there's very little to gain anymore on your cropping side as far as your energy and investment. You know, you, you're maybe dealing with a percentage point here or there of additional discovery, but holy cow, on your pasture side. You know, what if you just did one thing different? You know, what if you, what if you could, you know, do you even know what your profitability per acre is? You know, do you know what your return on investment is? Do you, can you segment your pasture out and tell you, it, it, is it, is it a profitable part of your operation or is it a, a, a or is it a, a sink? You know, and mm-hmm. so you start asking these questions and you just, and people just start thinking of things differently. Um, Then you start rolling into the exposure of, of um, how do you think differently? And that's a whole process in, in in and of itself. Ultimately, you know, depending on how far people want to take it though, I mean, you start exposing them to, to groups like the Grassland Coalition and, a, a, you know, maybe the philosophy of holistic resource management, which is not a um, pie in the sky, you know, ecological dogma or anything like that. It's just a way to think about you know your operation are you thinking holistically are you thinking about how one piece of that operation can impact another and and how these pieces of the puzzle all really do work together not not as individual segments so I could talk about this all day, but it's intriguing. (laughs) (laughs) It it
0: is, it is. And you're exactly right on like the production. I mean, when you talk to some folks who have managed to double or triple or quadruple the, either the utilization or production of grasslands, I mean, whoever in corn and soybean production is going to be able to, you know, find those similar gains and, I'm curious then in either the example of that woman who came into your property or, or, you know, maybe a fictitious person or something, how are you, you, what are the steps you're taking and what are usually a lot of the management practices that people are implementing then to see some of those gains on their pasture land?
1: Well, I've, I've learned that the, the, the biggest and first step in, in including with her and is honesty, honesty without attacking. I go back to my dad's example. I go back to the multitude of people that come through my door, whether they're 20 or whether they're 60. If I'm not honest with them, we can't move anywhere. So sometimes, you know, you might want to call it tough love, but it's not really so much that it's just an honest assessment. If I don't give them an honest assessment, we're, we're wasting time. Mm -hmm. So what's that first piece? And, you know, we are chronically, and I'll use Eastern South Dakota, we are chronically overstocked chronically overstocked we get just enough range to allow everyone to be a pretty bad range manager and uh that's kind of across the board now there are absolute examples of gems of of people that really do get this and really manage their rangeland well but go back to what I just said if you're putting 90 80 90 percent of your thought and process and energy into your cropping system you're not paying attention there's no time left to pay attention to your pastures And so when I, when I talk about honesty, I I talk about a real, a real honest assessment. You know, we get 25 inches of rainfall and I would say that most of these pastures that are being managed in the region where they're chewed down to golf course or, or similar by the end of the season, we are absolutely not capturing the value of those grasslands whatsoever. And, you know, I, I'm sure you understand, but, but for the, for the benefit of the listener, it's like, well, what, what are you talking about? when I'm talking about that kind of grazing pressure on a native rangeland in particular, um, we're, we're decimating those native plant communities by continually, continuous, continuous harvesting, continuous grazing, continuous nipping that plant off. So all the sunlight and water in the world is not going to help if you don't have a solar panel or a root system to catch it. You know, and this is where we start with the basics. And when I, honestly, when I, when people come in here, I, I, we, I use diagrams. I show them like, this is what happens to your plant. This is what happens to your roots. Let's not even talk about dollars and cents at this point. Let's talk mm-hmm. about, start with the ecology. I don't, you, I don't care if you get 50 inches of rain, if you don't have a root system to capture it, you're not going to mm-hmm. grow grass. And mm-hmm. so we, much like you guys, we, with any amount of, within in, in any, you no know, nine out of 10 years, we basically stay green. Um, and we get green early, and greenness tricks people into thinking greenness is not necessarily productivity, but it tricks people into thinking that oh, as long as it's green out there, the grass is growing, the cows are you know I'm I'm profitable. Well, mm-hmm. when you're only growing a quarter or a fifth of your potential on those acres, you are not utilizing that asset to the you know to the most profitable value. That's kind of the starting point, right? That's just the hard, that is the first. And maybe the hardest and maybe the biggest hurdle of the conversation to get to. Sometimes that, that part of that conversation turns people away and they're like, yeah, there's nothing I can do about it. Or maybe I don't want to do anything about it. Yeah, I just don't have the energy, the time, whatever. You know, I can I can feed my way through this, fine. Others will say, tell me more, you know, and that's where and that's kind of where the relationship begins. But if I don't, if I or we don't start at that core the, at the plant, um, you kind of miss the mark really, you know, because then you start talking about inputs and artificial inputs and all these things. And, and you can build yourself back toward inputs might f- make you feel, you know, bigger calves, it kind of, kind of goes back to the bigger calf syndrome. You know, the, the idea that the most profitable calves are the biggest calves in the sale barn in October, and eh, it doesn't really hold water when you break it down. The most profitable calves are the ones that have the, the least input for the you know per pound and that might be a that might be a 450 pound calf born in may you know so it's i'm kind of rambling here but it's all of those things together that that we we try to start with and uh in the case of the woman that walked through the door um it was you know what was the first and best step needed to get the cows off of that rangeland. that's that's coming from a range guy right like like Sometimes you have to, you have to do drastic steps to recover and you actually have to remove the pressure. And in this case, you know, we had to for a year just to, just to mm-hmm. see what we even had, you know, to work yeah. with. So.
0: That's interesting. And I think you're right. The mindset is the biggest thing um, and cracking that mindset of what a lot of people, at least in my area, again, here in Minnesota, where a lot of people are primarily grain producers is that the pasture land is just the ground that's, you know, you can't farm. And so right. that is step number one is to recognize this ground is not just your side thing. You know, it's not just wasteland. It, it's It has some real production and profit potential if managed well. And uh, if somebody then, is, you know, they break through that mine challenge, where do you go from there? What's the next steps to uh, on the ground?
1: So breaking through, you know, depending on where you're at in the world. Um, and those of us that grew up in the similar places in Minnesota, I would also offer that. Very little opportunity in, in in a neighborhood to experience the positivity of managing the grassland well, because if if it if it if it's anything like what I grew up in, you know, I mean, we had uh, maybe ten acres of pasture, right? And we were feeding twice a day. What what is that pasture at that point? It, it's essentially a dry lot. in in a sense, or a a loafing area at at best, Mm -hmm. right? They're Mm -hmm. continuously gonna be grazing that because every day they go to the bunk and every day they walk out to the same 10 acres and they pick pick around and and there is no learning opportunity there whatsoever. There's no way to assess at all in that that sense, what that pasture is. That pasture is not working for the farm other than it's a great place for the cattle to stay dry uncomfortable you know mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. so so where's the learning opportunity but if you can expose yourself to the learning opportunity of what grasslands really can do you start to you start to look at your entire land base differently and you start to say well wait a second here is maybe the most profitable use of some of this land is to restore it back to actually perennial grassland perennial mm-hmm. pasture and that that is where things really start to take off on a ranch wide level. When you can get yourself to the point of of being able to look at the entire picture and say, gosh, a lot of this ground would be better serve our operation by going back into a perennial cover. Okay, and this is where the this is where the profitability and economics um, really takes hold, in my opinion and you know we got five and a half dollar corn or or so you know right now this you know in in the current market um and let's say you're growing 200 bushel corn right at five bucks that's a thousand dollars an acre right And it and it and it's sounds pretty good um your inputs i don't know i'm not I'm, i'm 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 stepping a little bit over the line here but Inputs somewhere maybe between four and five hundred bucks, guessing, you know. Um, yeah,
0: it depends if you're including land, like cost, and stuff, sign- and, and land cost and stuff, significant and machinery and everything, whatnot. significantly higher. Yeah, I've heard significantly of higher seven, than that, right? But but I'm just saying, like, the, yeah,
1: the planting cost, though, the planting cost, sure, you yeah, know, of yeah. you know, maybe you're you know, fertile, maybe not fertile, somewhere in that range, right? Yeah, okay, yeah. It, to put that crop in the ground, but then you've also got land cost, overhead, equipment, mm-hmm. and all these mm-hmm. other things. And so, and so when you look at the final take-home number, is it, is it any better than what you might be able to do with a perennial crop that you've got almost no sustained long-term artificial input costs on if managed well and correctly? And we're being very general here, but Mm -hmm. that's, that's what has helped so many people turn the corner is it's not so much the, the, the dollars that you take in, of course, it's the dollars you don't spend. And when you don't spend a lot of those dollars, um, I'll, I'll, I'm not going to name names and I'm not going to use very specifics, but there's one producer in particular that is is very good about sharing his family's story and it's his story to share. And But he just shared with us here recently, their total gross as they transition to a grass-based operation, thousands and thousands of acres of crop ground transition 100% back to grass. Wow. Their, um, their total gross was cut in half by going to that, but yet their net, he said is, is higher, much mm-hmm. higher than it was, you know, and, and so, you know, and, and it's, and you, but you need examples. Like some, most of the stuff, I don't think most of this is intuitive. I think it's early adopters that have learned and have, have taken the punches in the gut and have figured out how to work their way through it that are willing to share the successes that makes this feasible, I would say most producers intuitively would have a hard time navigating their way through all this if it weren't for other resources and, and, a, and a learning community that's willing to share. Because I don't know that I would ever say that I've heard that it's easy, but I've I've heard time and again and been part of it that, it, that says it's absolutely worth it.
0: Mm-hmm. Man, that, that kind of story of that type of a, that operation that transitioned out of crops to grasslands, those are the things that get me excited, you know, is that this is real. This is, you know, genuine profit and potential and, and the work can be enjoyable. The lifestyle can be good. And I think a lot of times that's a struggle is uh, people don't want the livestock, but maybe they think they're you know used to, the I don't know, the daily work, the daily chores, but you can have a good livestock with well-managed livestock as well.
1: Well, I, I didn't mean to interrupt you there, but uh, there's a there's a very good um, example of what you just what you just talked about. You know, we have a we have a a, a very we have a, we have these tremendous assets in South Dakota of these producers that have walked this walk. And one particular producer that's in North Central South Dakota, his name is Lyle Perman, and, and Lyle Lyle puts pen to paper, and he does it in a, in a great way. And he, Lyle gives us talk about. Looking at all the economics, kind of breaking it down and, and simplifying it to the point where it really does come to down to the, the cost or the effort of running a cow versus running an acre. Right. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And Lyle, Lyle puts it this way is that it's in some ways it's, it's, um, it's not hard to understand why do we see so much grassland conversion? Well, what's easier to run ultimately a thousand cows or a thousand acres? right? Mm-hmm. And, uh, most people would say a thousand acres is, is easier. And I think most cattlemen would agree. It probably is easier. Mm-hmm. What's more profitable. And that's where it really comes down to this, um, this understanding of it's not magically profitable, but you, you know, but if you're willing to do the work and, and find your niche and, and market and manage. And so how do you find those, how do you find those profits? points right
0: Mm -hmm. you
1: mentioned the lifestyle so a young producer coming into the game if you're looking at livestock as needing concrete trucks tractors barns Mm -hmm. heat electricity all of these things so you can calve that herd in january february march you're probably not going to make it in today's economics right but if you're willing to come into that and say, okay, well, how do, I, how do I reduce my inputs? Maybe I'm going to not to do all those things, and maybe I'm going to rent land, or maybe I'm going to calve in May and June um, where my, all of most of those inputs get drastically reduced. Maybe I can still have a, a side job then because in May and June, my cows are probably going to take care of themselves. And there's people I'm sure listening right now, that are like, this guy's off his rocker. But example after example after example, we have, when you basically transition to that later calving date, you're matching that, those herd, that herd with nature and your input costs of your own labor, time, stress, they just go down. I'm not going to go down the litany of all these producers that have done this, but everyone that has done it, mo- the vast majority, maybe 100% of them, say they would never go back. It's really about, and I go back to that producer example that I said, where they, you know, they transitioned and found profitability. What does he spend most of his time doing, by his own admission? Thinking, thinking, sitting back, mm-hmm. evaluating, and thinking. And being innovative and you know he uses the word trying to figure out when his product is overvalued in the marketplace continually thinking and um and i even you know i mean i I could just i could ramble on and on about examples but i have one young producer friend uh mid-30s so how does he use his assets and how would he use his assets and he's like well you know i might have my own herd in may but if i've got infrastructure Maybe I'll custom cab someone else's herd, if they want to drop their calves in February. Fine, you know, custom cabin form in my facilities. But I'm not going to take that risk on with my own animals, you know, and in just just really innovative thinking like that. So there's there's a lot of of room out there for innovation.
0: Yeah. No, I, and and I'm sure in your experience you've got so many connections and networks that's that'd be really neat to tap into. But I I have this thing of getting I have a tendency to get us down rabbit trails, and I want to get back to grassland <laughs> sure, <laughs> management yeah. and, yeah, and, and yeah. restoration or yeah. grassland management and things. And so when you're working with producers, specifically because of the majority of our, our listeners are producers and grazers, how are you helping them utilize livestock and fence and water infrastructure what are the steps they're taking to start improving their actual grasslands and making more oh. diverse grassland species you know beautiful ecosystems filled with wildlife and diversity of you know insects and all these different things and taking that kind of back to the original point of hand in hand along with the productivity and profitability like how how, how are you doing that in practice or how are producers doing that in practice and you walking them through that. So the
1: first step I think is, is I think I'm learning, um, exposure. Those producers have to walk around on someone else's ground. They don't need, they, I think I've learned that they can't hear it from me or people like me when it really Mm -hmm. comes down to brass tacks. We can, like I said, we can be the gateway drug. Mm -hmm. It usually doesn't click till they walk around on someone else's land that they feel, you know, that brotherhood with the sisterhood, whatever you want to call it and see it firsthand, you know that's probably step one that to hear it really from the horse's mouth that this actually can work. So, but they also have to value those things like you and I just talked about if they don't value that diversity, um, it's pretty hard to shoot for a goal that you don't value, you know, so you have to, you have to come to a place where you say that, you know, good, bad, or otherwise, that's my, that's my goal is to achieve that level of diversity and resilience. Um, to mimic what Jane or Fred or Johnny is doing, and, and as far as kind of the result on the land, how you get there though has got to be your own story, right? So that's probably the first thing. The second thing then is evaluation of where are you not capturing your own profit potential, and we kind of talked about that already. If you're if you're absolutely hammering your own your own resources, and that's probably the hardest and first step, is because. Um, there's kind of two types, I think, of restoration philosophy that I have to kind of deal with. One is where the where the stocking rate and numbers are probably are, are, are within reason, but the management needs tweaking. Okay. The other is where we're so grossly overstocked. Okay. So in the first scenario, you don't have to hit it. You don't have to hit it with the punch in the gut that says you have to, you know, maybe reduce your herd size because that will absolutely create a a hard thing, a hard, that's a hard pill to swallow because Mm -hmm. human nature is to say, the more I have, therefore the more profitable I am. And -hmm. to get someone down the road of saying, you know, actually you might be profitable with less animals, more, Mm -hmm. you might be more profitable with less animals is a really, really hard thing to kind of mentally, Mm -hmm. you know, So you try the first thing I try to do when I'm working with them or, or, you know, I would say that we is can we can we move a few things around without having to do the punch in the gut right away that reduction and that reduction can come in a lot of ways that can be reduction of time on on grass, it can be reduction of actual animals, it can be reduction of size and frame size, you know, just pressure, right. So that's one thing. The other thing. The, but the other side is when I, when it is so grossly overstocked, um, yeah, I'll, I'll use my, my home (laughs) example, right? Uh, it's 60 or 80 pairs on 10 acres of grass year round. Well, what do you think that's going to look like? You know, so that's a removal of, of, of pressure. That's kind of that step one, like assessing the grassland resource. You know, we call it a, we, we call it a range assessment. Um, we call it a ranch assessment from there then, it's assessing the actual plant community. What do you really have to work with? You know, and this also gets to be, we, we are such a, a, such an agronomic mindset in America that we, we tend to fall, we tend to mimic our rangeland management after our cropping management. And I would argue with anybody that that's true, but what do we, what do we do then? Typically we fall in, okay, what can I do to make this better? And what are the questions? And I'll tell you what the questions are. What, what can I plant in my pasture? How much fertilizer do I need to apply or how much chemical do I need to apply to, to change that plant community? All three of those answers are no, 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 you know, right out of the gates. Those are, those are unrecoverable in, in many ways. Those are unrecoverable input costs. Unless or until you get to the point of knowledge where you understand you know, you don't want to take a hammer where a scalpel is needed. And those three things are the hammer. Um, so the first transitional step is is stocking rates, time, duration, intensity. And if you can get to a, per, a person to realize that first step and get them into a, a grazing plan that, you know, with a feed and forage balance and with a an opportunity to really understand what that, what that pasture is doing for them. And then you can, that opens the door toward other things. Now that's primarily on the native pasture. When you're getting into like what we call go back pastures, tame pastures, grazing haylands, you know, et cetera. A lot of those things we might see on the Minnesota side more as we go east, tame pasture. Mm -hmm. And certainly as you get into the Iowa, Nebraska, um, fescue type restored pastures. Now there's a lot of, there's a lot of things a person can do different, but uh, we, you know, the biggest thing is trying to control those input costs. When it comes to actual crop, transitioning cropland back to grass, that's where the art and the science really, you know, really come together. The biggest thing there is a needs assessment. So if you will, I'll use a couple examples. When I did that for the Nature Conservancy, and and I have colleagues that still are working heavily in that arena, our first and foremost goal was not the cow by any means. It was the that maximizing the diversity of that grassland trying to, to 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 recapture as much as possible what naturally would have been there when you go over to the private land side same philosophy holds true you want to maximize diversity but you also have to meet people where they're at and so you can't you can't really come into it with a with an ultra puristic viewpoint and and the example would be if someone's made some decisions and they've transitioned crop back to grass and they've done it with a lot of tame species and in, in and not to sound too geeky here but if you know if they're using you know let's let's talk about clovers, bromes, uh fescues, maybe some intermediate wheat grasses or trefoils or vetches that are non-native and maybe even you might argue invasive right but highly productive You know, am I going to come in and say, hey, rip all this out and go back to to native grass only? Mm -hmm. That would probably be a, that would probably be a mistake, (laughs) you know, to try to guide them. So you kind of try to guide them to using what you've got while also educating on, hey, on the next project, maybe more resiliency would be achieved if you used, if we, if we worked in some more natives, you know, or maybe, maybe what we would do is avoid those really aggressive invaders, even though the, even though the, um, the performance sheet on that, maybe on that trefoil says it's super high in protein, tons of energy, great weight gain, highly productive. Okay. But if it, in a holistic framework, if it impacts something else on your ranch, like your native prairie, you know, or your native pasture, if it invades into that area, are you actually cut you know cutting yourself off at the legs because now you've got input costs and in controlling it possibly you know and all these are value judgments but mm-hmm. um we when we get to the point of restoration that's when those partner dollars really come into play you know um and and <clears throat> and helping producers identify what can take some of the edge off those costs, whether that's the fence costs, the water costs. But we try to do that in a real holistic framework, right? Like you just don't go plant the grass and then two years later say, okay, now what are we going to do for fence? And then now what are we going to do for water? We try to kind of put that plan together on the front end so they really can project four, five, six, ten 10 years down the road, what that plant community will transition into And, and, and what it will provide them, you know, as far as when to graze, you know, not, not only time of year, but how much intensity can it take? I mean, I could spiel examples on and on, but I think maybe one way to take this home would be that if you're going to, you know, transition crop ground to grassland and perennial pasture, the purest would say, the purest in me wants to say, put it all back into natives, right? Hmm. Mm-hmm. The realist in me says, you know what, those those pastures closer to the buildings, where you know you're going to be in and out and hammering them, you know, just by the way of moving animals back and forth, your natives probably aren't going to make it anyway. So let's find you a resilient mix that's going to allow you to um, to preserve that sod and make sure that we're not breaking through the sod. You know, as an example.
0: Yeah, well, it's it's all about evaluating context. I mean, just like like you're saying, there's so many variables to consider and. Uh, it's kind of, I don't know, I guess get somewhat frustrated with some of the simple grazing management plans that are just like, you know, we're going to take your farm, divide it into eight equal paddocks and move them three (laughs) times, you know, every three days. And it's like, yeah, that doesn't, that just doesn't work. It doesn't doesn't take into consideration that pasture close to the place that had manure on it back when your grandpa dairy farmed and the one out in the back hillside that was tilled and eroded away. And and you're going to tell me that, managing that super productive and that unproductive pasture, the exact same is, is going to be fair. I mean, no, <laughs>
1: no, it's all. It's- no. And when we dive, yeah. When we dive into the, um, sometimes I think we limit our tools, you know, um, these, these, these grasslands evolved with much more than just the hoof and the, and the, and the grazer, they evolved mm-hmm. with climate, they evolved with fire, they evolved with rest, they evolved with, you know, a, a bunch of these different, chaos it's chaos you know they evolved in a chaotic environment so you know when we get into like what you're saying you know like that management intensive grazing cell grazing you know i think i think the grazing community has inadvertently slipped into a mindset that um that cell grazing paddock grazing is the best And I think in a lot of ways it can be, it's fair to say that, but it, but it really goes back to your objectives. You know, there is something to be said about open, wide open spaces, open rangelands, not tripping over a fence every 40 feet, you know? And so you really, it's, it's gotta be in the context of the pasture or the rangeland that you're trying to manage and the goals and objectives you're trying to maintain. Mm -hmm. The cool thing is, is that um, there are a few, a few truths that you can start to build from. And one of those truths is, you know, a plant that's nipped off after about six or seven, eight days, it starts to try to regrow. And if it's nipped again, it's going to hurt it. It needs, it needs recovery time. So recovery is important, you know, without necessarily trying to put a, a, a time stamp on it. The, the idea, the biological idea that recovery is important has to be a part of your grazing plan. You have to have recovery time. Now, if that's a red and white clover or sweet clover or alfalfa, that recovery time is much, arguably much less than, you know, in, in northern Iowa or southeast Minnesota. That kind of system needs less, much less recovery time than a western shortgrass prairie rangeland. But they both need recovery time. You have to understand the context of what you're managing. And maybe to take that example further, you're not going to use the same restoration mix in those two places, right? So you Mm -hmm. have to look at the context of your soils, your rainfall, your, you know, the, the, what, what climate, you know, what biome you're really in. Those are very important things. Very important. Mm -hmm. Um, Maybe one of the best examples I had of that as a producer down in. Uh, north of brookings um south dakota that had read an article so he had 70 acres and he had 70 pairs of 1400 pound hereford mamas on 70 acres year round what do you think that looked like you know yeah. they were yeah, feeding there 365 yeah. days a year mm-hmm. and he read an article out of northern iowa that used an example on um basically that would have give, that would have led you to believe that you could go in with, um, uh, replant this land and carry 150 pairs. Mm-hmm. And the hard reality of that is like, I'm sorry, sir, you can't do that. You're not in the right climate. You're not in the right context. You're not in the right drainage or soils. You know, you're on gravelly soils and on and on and on. And ultimately that relationship didn't go anywhere because the, there was a, an unwillingness to accept where you're at. So, so those are realities. But by and large, by and large, you know, and we, we're we're dabbling all around this question of of how do you do this, and and the, really the how you do it is you have to be humble, very humble, and understand and and taking that producer. What I would say is to the group, I absolutely, unequivocally can't help a person with all aspects of their ranch and range management really nobody can I can help I can help you understand all the biology all of the the mixes all of the grazing but I am not the person that's going to help you take the leap you know when you're ready to take the leap into transitioning you need to talk to someone else that's done it right Mm -hmm. like you have to and that's 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 where I'm so I'm so happy to work with the people that I work with because everybody gets that right like
0: yeah yeah,
1: you you have to expose them to someone that's walked in those shoes
0: mm-hmm. no this is for sure an industry filled well it should be filled with relationships and networks i mean if we want this industry to grow and to be in, successful as individuals we got to work with others no doubt and i uh right we've we've already crossed over an hour here and so i want to uh, respect your time and stuff, but are there I've got two final questions, but before I ask those, are there any final yeah. thoughts, kind of things you'd like to share kind of on this topic that we maybe didn't quite get into that you'd you'd like to before I let you go?
1: Well, we've talked a lot about uh, a lot of different aspects. You know it's it goes much further than range management. You know the heart of your question or the heart of our of our um, talk today is building confidence that you can look at your land differently and that there that there's people out there to help you look at your land differently. I, Mm -hmm. you know, I, so we, we didn't talk about one, you know, so I do a lot of, a lot of history in, in fire management. And I kind of use that as an example sometimes in that nothing, very few things in fire in using fire on the landscape are intuitive. They're learned. Right. Mm -hmm. And I think what happens with people, they, they, they get embarrassed because they don't intuitively understand something. There's nothing intuitive really about dung beetle management, and there's nothing really intuitive even about uh, conventional farming practices. Most of these things are learned, right? And the, the same goes for grazing management. You know, intuitively, we have two reactions as humans to fire we either want to attack it and fight it, or we want to run away, right? <laughs> There's a whole bell curve of spectrum of other things in between those two things about that particular topic or tool. All of that has to be learned. It's not intuitive. And I think the same goes for what we're talking about here today. You know, you can, like I said, it's kind of drinking from a fire hose. We've, we've talked about this for an hour and we barely scratched the surface. Certainly we didn't even get into the resources that are out there to help you learn. And the authors and the people that have walked this walk already, you know,
0: well, that's one of my next questions this re- resource recommendations. So yeah, get ready.
1: <laughs> yeah. So I like to, you know, without promoting individuals, I think we have to be careful, but there are people out there that um, are, uh, you know, if you want to, if you want to dip a toe into this, um, this idea, and I'm going to just use it as, I'll use the regenerative agriculture um, idea there's you know there's a group of, of people uh Dave Brandt, Al Williams Ray Archuleta Gabe Brown if any of those names ring a bell mm-hmm. you know the soil health institute they've they've started individually they've done a lot of work independently mm-hmm. collectively they're doing this new work you know any any one of those individuals as a as a taste of what this looks like you know um Gabe Brown out of North Dakota recently wrote this book you know dirt to soil that's a great resource You've got uh you know Jim Garrish uh who's published a ton, you know, and Stockman Grass Farmer is a great resource. Um he publishes in that gosh, what's the publisher's name? I'm drawing a blank. Uh but you know, there are these resources, you know. So I would say like like to to start thinking about this, you know, subscribe to maybe the Stockman Grass Farmer publication, uh, maybe the tri subscribe to the Tri-State Neighbor join the so in south dakota we have the south dakota grassland coalition in north dakota we have the north dakota grazing lands coalition nebraska you know i don't know how far of a reach you have here has the nebraska grazing lands coalition minnesota does have the coalition um i can't remember what name they're going under soil health um,
0: coalition we've got and yeah and we've got you've got the soil but there also is
1: the the um, yeah. Grazing Lands Coalition.
0: It's um, very, it's and, just kind of getting, trying to get going and, and stuff. Yeah, right. we've got a lot of good ones, and and actually, for your your question, we've got listeners all over the country and all over the world. So yeah, any recommendations right. for yeah? Anyone? So yeah. so I
1: think I think the cool thing is is don't let the name of an organization. I, I think twenty years ago, the name of the organization might have given you some. Context about their breadth and scope, right? But we're in the we're in the information technology age, right? So I, I sit on the national board of the grass fed exchange. Okay. Now you might say, well, I'm a conventional uh, beef producer. I have no interest, desire. In fact, maybe I don't even like the idea of grass fed. Fine.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: But the resources that they can point you to, without having to necessarily adopt. All aspects of the philosophy are wonderful. So I kind of, you know, I kind of challenge producers, you know, kind of get over yourself. Like there is so many resources out there. You don't have to necessarily agree with all points of an organization to have a relationship with that organization and utilize the the resources that they've got for you, right? So I would say the Grass-Fed Exchange, NRCS, of course, you know, um, state game uh, agencies, um, those all are are really good. I just had a, a a buddy a a board board of directors for the Grassland Coalition just walk in my <laughs> office here. So you know sure. the the yeah. the the tentacles are are widespread. Um, but you know, obviously, we're doing a podcast right now. You know, there's there's like you know the plug for SDSU Extension or any of those extensions mm-hmm. across the Great Plains. We have the Great Plains Fire Science Exchange. I mean, we've there's just yeah. uh, the, 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 the migratory, you know, some of these things that some of these names people probably might not even recognize, but are migratory bird joint ventures, you know, in our listening, <laughs> in our core listening area, the Great Plains and the Prairie Pothole. We, I mean, all yeah. of these folks are collectively working to help the producer mm-hmm. have a better mm-hmm. grassland experience, um, along of, of longevity and sustainability, you know, resiliency.
0: Yeah. No, and I'll try That was a mouthful. I'm sorry. No, that's great. I'll try and get, uh, see if I can find most of those and get links to them in the show notes. The last question I had for you, and then I'll let you get to your, your guests that you've got waiting for you, uh, is how can people find you or reach out to you? Or if there's anything that you want to plug or share, uh, you can go ahead and do that now.
1: Well, I would say Jared, for your listening audience, I would like to work with you offline to um, help build, help you build that resource, um, list, you know, first of all, so you don't have to go it alone. Um, secondly, um, uh, I run a, a, listserv. So you can contact me anytime at peter.bauman at sdstate.edu. I'll give that again, peter.bauman, B-A-U-M-A-N at sdstate.edu but I would also encourage folks very simply just Google SD grass. It'll take you to the South Dakota grassland coalition website where you'll be able to be connected to start these connectivities. Um, uh, You can find me on SDSU extension. You can Google SDSU extension website and you'll, you'll be able to find me there. Mm -hmm. Um, But we, uh, one of the things I do on the side as I run this this listserv there's about a thousand people on it doesn't Mm -hmm. have to be a South Dakotan all it does is it um as I send out you know sometimes about one it it, it ebbs and flows but grass related information how do you get more information on grass management that's probably the simplest way to say it Mm -hmm. um Mm -hmm. And I just try to keep people connected that way. And I do it via email listserv because in the era of social media, sometimes simplicity wins and uh, Mm -hmm. it's a simple listserv. It's not a chat. It's not a blog. It's nothing like that. Nobody can even reply to it. It's a one way source of information. You get an email from me. It says, Hey, this thing's going on here. And Mm -hmm. if if you don't want it, you delete it. And if you, if you want to find out more, the links or the, or the attachments are right there and, and yeah. I, it, it's very low key and it doesn't bother people too
0: much. So, no, Perfect. Yeah. Well, I appreciate it. I, I really do. I think this will provide a lot of great information and just getting people thinking differently. Cause that's a lot of times, like we talked about one of the biggest obstacles just within our own, our own minds. So I really appreciate it. Um, and I would love to follow up with you after afterwards about some of those resources that you, that you mentioned to get them in the links. The herd quitter podcast is brought to you by Ferro cattle company. His mission is to help ranchers put more fun and profit into their business. You can get more information on Farrow Cattle Company at farrowcattle.com. And if you enjoy what you've heard on this podcast, be sure to subscribe and check us out on Facebook and Instagram at Herd Quitter Podcast or at herdquitterpodcast.com.